Contact your friends and family. Need help and support? Please contact us at the hotline 311 Psychosocial Support at 722-6575 or 518-4157. Brought to you by PAHO, the OECS Commission and UNICEF. Welcome to the show. It is June 25th, 2020, and it's a Thursday. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, listening right there on Hits FM 92.1 and 91.1 in the South. Also, uh, staying locked in on Facebook, our live stream, and also on Channel 124 on Flow. We're also on different social media platforms like Instagram, and we'll try to make a way, I think. The only thing we're missing is Twitter. And if we can get that on Twitter, I'll have my um, technicians look into that, see if we can do that as well. <laughs> um, it's June 25th. You all got paid today? Uh, public service workers, did you guys get paid? Did you get in paid in full? I want to know exactly what's happening. So later on in this show, let me know your business. You can call me and let me know what exactly is going on. Um, but as we go into the show, what I found very interesting is that we've had a lot of discussion uh, discussions on corruption and conflict of interest and these sort of things. And most recently, there was a report by Miguel Favre uh, last Tuesday speaking of potential relationship between the minister Guy Joseph and a preschool um, in his constituency. And since then, there has been some backlash, especially as the minister now has demanded an apology from NBC and, of course, from Miguel um, Favrier. But I think because of that report, there are still so many um, issues that have yet to be addressed um, people do have concerns, including the Sinusha Labour Party, who have uh, released some of their more pertinent questions, uh, asking for some clarification on that. So if you can put that on the screen, I think it too is something that some, uh, many of our journalists need to get to the bottom of as well. And uh, they include questions like, what is the Honorable Guy Joseph's relationship, if any, with First Step Preschool and Daycare? Now, the real issue there in that report was that the workers, the teachers at that preschool, were being paid, I think, $800, but they are saying that there was a 10% deduction uh, for whatever reason, for what they were told was NIC um, contributions going in there. And then when they did their own investigations, they realized that they didn't that they were not, the 10% deductions didn't go to NIC, so they're not even eligible for the assistance from the NIC that we know is ongoing um, as we speak. So again, it's still very uh, shady exactly what is going on. 
but if we can put those questions back on the screen. Number two, it continues. What is the relationship, if any, of the Honorable Guy Joseph's political attaché to the First Step Preschool and Daycare? Three, did Honorable Guy Joseph or any of his representatives ever play the, pay the salaries of the alleged employees of the institution? Number four, if so, is the Honorable Guy Joseph or any of his representatives responsible for the alleged reductions to be made payable as contributions to the National Insurance Corporation for the institution's employees? Number five, it continues, if so, was there a deduction of 10% of alleged salaries when it should have been 5% payable as contributions to the National Insurance Corporation? Number six, after the media report was made public, did Honorable Guy Joseph or any of his representatives pay an alleged $500 or any sum of money to the institution's employees? And it continues until number 10, is the Honorable Guy Joseph aware that there are legal repercussions if the allegations brought against him are accurate? And the most recent thing we've heard from Mr. Guy Joseph on that is... uh, a letter being sent by his lawyers saying that they demand an apology and that what uh, the the report Miguel put out um, was libelous and it was false. So that's where we are with that. But because of this, what was happening here, um, I do know that a career public servant, Mr. Victor Poyot, said that it reminded him of many other instances of... Um, corruption, corruption that can be cooperated in the past, in the recent past that he's saying. Um, and he calls it political fronting, where ministers have businesses and they don't have it in their name, but they put somebody else in charge of it, in front of it, but they're the ones getting the money and getting the financial benefits. And he goes on to explain in an article uh, released in a regional newspaper, and I thought it was really interesting, and I did speak with him. But what the issue is to me is that we're hearing a lot about corruption, and this is not the first time. And it seems it's now seeming to be part of our culture almost, but what's worse is that a lot of politicians now, they're saying, um, we'll go, we'll, we'll do an audit or we'll do an investigation and you will see the, you know, the results of this investigation. And in the end, nothing ever happens, which leads people really to an apathy about the whole thing. We think, you know, tout politicien say mem bagay, yo tout say mem, sort of thing. So what I've really wanted to see is some accountability, some repercussions for the things that we know are going on. And maybe um, it's for lack of, real evidence that nothing has happened, but it's something that I think we really need to address in this country, um, corruption. I would like to see a corrupt politician behind bars. I would like to see a corrupt politician handcuffed and walking and doing the walk of shame to court. I would like to see that sort of justice. But before we get into that, let's listen to Mr. Poyot as he speaks about political fronting. On Tuesday, 26 June, I listened to an NBC News report presented by Miguel Ferri about disgruntled employees of a privately run preschool located in South, um, referred to as First Step Preschool. The details of the report had a familiar ring to it. And um, I thought to myself, this is another case of mysterious corruption. I decided to present this article, Political Fronting, the practice of government ministers using private citizens, usually relatives, close friends, to operate phony businesses 
usually unregistered on the behalf. I decided to do this because I had a personal experience a few years ago, in fact about three years ago, that involved a government minister and someone who was fronting on behalf of the minister. The case involved my colleague and I as owners of the Institute for Training, Management and Consultancy Services, better known as Intramax, we leased a building to an individual who operated the Caribbean Hospitality and Training Institute, CHTTI. We assisted the young man to establish a building located near the cultural center, National Cultural Center. And um, a few weeks after he started operating, I was listening to the talk show host, a talk show host, popular talk show host, I should say. And he displayed the signature of a number of individuals and alleged that CHTTI was owned by an associate of a government minister. What struck me is that today, up to today, the minister in question is yet to refute the allegation made by the talk show host and we were left with a number of issues to deal with. One, we thought we were assisting a young man to start business, but in fact he was actually doing what I call political fronting. He ended up spending um, a little over six months. We didn't get our rental revenue. At the end of the day, he ended up also not paying electricity in a paying water to the electricity company and um, Wasco. And so there were a number of issues involved. First of all, as a result of the individual's behavior, we accumulated unwanted debt. We were forced to incur additional expenses. In fact, if we had to deal with the matter in terms of going to court, there would have been additional expenses for us, you know, bearing in mind that we had to address some of the expenses in order to get our business going. So that Intramax incurred a lot of costs. Now, you would ask, should we have taken the matter to court? But there is an additional expense, which means we have to engage an attorney and go through the, the long-winded process of getting a redress. In the meantime, the minister is accumulating wealth on the side, outside of his work as a minister. But the minister is well protected because if the fraudulent activity is discovered, then he or she can simply say, well, I don't know anything about that. 
the the way in which the the transactions were carried out, we were dealing with one individual. At least we assumed the individual was the owner of the business. But by the time we found this out, it meant that um, we could not um, we could not deal with anybody else since he was the one um, we were interfacing with. Um, the, 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 the point, though, is that the minister receives taxable income but can conceal it because he's not known to own, own the business. The individual who is fronting at the end of the day is actually happy to be employed or to be engaged in the activity and may not even be aware that it is a fraudulent activity. This is the individual who takes all the risk and in fact bears the blame if things go wrong. As in, in this case, things have gone wrong. So the minister is shielded and the minister, um, while the minister is shielded, the individual um, has to answer all the questions, legal or otherwise. Now, that was Mr. Poyo there speaking of political fronting. He wrote that article in the Caribbean News Global, so you can have a look at it as well. Uh, the heading is Political Fronting, a cesspool of ministerial corruption. And what I found really interesting is the way he ended um, that article. And it says, quote, in... In the last four years, Simusha has seen a significant increase in allegations of ministerial corruption uh, to the extent that political fronting now appears to be an endemic among the current crop of government ministers. There seems to be a blatant disregard for the opinion of citizens regarding the lack of transparency uh, in the granting of contracts and the number of direct awards issued to a single uh, preferred contractor. So, and this is somebody who's been there, who knows what it is and who knows exactly how the protocol should be and exactly the change that we're seeing, especially in recent times. Uh, what I did also find uh, was that in the Caribbean too, we it's not just a St. Lucian thing, I think it's a regional thing as well, um, even though it's way more concentrated here to me. But um, with Clico and what's happening there, at least something is happening in the Caribbean where... Um, the former head is being brought to justice or brought to court and, of course, innocent until proven guilty. Um, but he was just put on bail for the what happened with Clico and it being it collapsing in 2009 and people losing millions of dollars. Um, so we'll have a report on that just for us to see what exactly justice is supposed to look like and just um, how exactly allegations and real accusations of these white-collar crimes are supposed to be dealt with. The 75-year-old former insurance boss is facing four charges. He's accused of stealing 3.3 million Barbados dollars belonging to Clico International Life Insurance Limited between December 1, 2008 and April 27, 2009. He's also accused of conspiring with other people to defraud Clico of the same amount of money by inducing the insurance company to pay the money to Thompson and Associates. Paris of number 8, Darrell's Heights St. Michael, is also charged for failing to submit tax returns on his income for the year ending March 31, 2010. 
The fourth charge is that he engaged in money laundering, where he concealed $3.3 million, which were the proceeds of crime, sometime between December 1, 2008 and April 27, 2009. Oparis was not required to plead to the indictable charges when he appeared before Magistrate Christy Cuffey Sargent at the District A Criminal Court. He was granted bail with two sureties, and as part of the bail conditions, the former insurance executive was ordered to surrender his travel documents and report to the Glebe police station every Monday and Friday before noon with valid identification. He returns to court on November 19th. He's represented by Queen's Counsels Hal Gollop, Michael Yearwood and Michael Lashley, as well as attorney Neil Marshall. Now, Clico collapsed about a decade ago. The company was placed in judicial management and was eventually taken over by government, which paid off much of its debts. When it collapsed, tens of millions of dollars in pension contributions, policyholder funds and deposits had been put in jeopardy. In the ensuing years, policyholders came together to recover either some or all of their investments, but some measure of success was only achieved over the last three years with the establishment of legislation. More recently, government significantly advanced the progress to reimburse affected policyholders through a combination of cash and bonds. Much of the work to make that a reality was carried out by the former Resolution Life or ResLife, which completed the bulk of its work over the past year. Lisa Broom, CBC News. So my question is really, will we ever see uh, corrupt politicians brought to justice here? Uh, will we ever truly have an investigation with something to show or some repercussions to it at all? Um, or is it going to be one of those election things where people go on the podium, go on stage and make these accusations, level them at people and, you know, make it a political football, but nothing in the end ever happens? And will it be a case where media workers have to do these things? You write the reports, you send them in, and people get angry and you will call, but nothing ever really happens. And I'm telling you, if you're going to be in media, I guess, for 10 years and seeing things and reporting and doing it based on fact, in, in doing it on fact and nothing ever comes out of it, I'm sure it can get a bit hopeless. That's how I see it. But it's a cultural thing that I think we need to look at because what we have done really, all we've ever really seen and can see is a conflict of interest and we, I think everybody can agree to that, that there has been clear conflicts of interest right now. Um, and just for that reason, let's just play you that clip. Have you ever been faced with a decision where your personal financial interests seem to be in conflict with your government work? Where what seems good for you may not be good for your agency? It happens to a lot of us, and it can be very stressful as we struggle with making the best decision. You know, as I think about these things, you know, it occurs to me that this is probably one of the most corrupt places on, on, uh, around, you know. First step to avoiding conflicts of interest is to be able to identify one. A conflict of interest can occur any time we have a financial interest or some other interest, such as an outside job or business, that could in some way impair our fairness and impartiality on the job. Some examples of a conflict of interest include outside activities like a second job, serving on an outside board where your official duties are in conflict with your work responsibilities, or owning stock in a vendor. Also, accepting a valuable gift, such as the concert tickets, from a vendor that does business with the government can create real conflicts of interest. Because the next time you give more work to that vendor, 
You may have created the appearance that you provided that work in exchange for the valuable gift, something that appears unethical to others, violates ethics rules, and damages your reputation. Also, since you feel obligated to the vendor, you may not make the best decision for the government. So by now, you should have the information you need to identify a conflict. Let's say your brother-in-law is a computer vendor, and he approaches you about helping him gain a contract with your agency. Since you have a personal relationship with your brother-in-law, that clearly implicates another set of ethics rules, the impartiality rules. And so you must disclose this to your supervisor or the USDA Office of Ethics. Government agencies like the Department of Agriculture have resources to help you identify and disclose potential conflicts, such as financial disclosure forms, or laws, regulations, and policies that specify that we need to go to either our supervisors or the USDA Office of Ethics with that information. The important point is, if we have identified a potential conflict of interest, we need to reveal it immediately. Once we've disclosed the conflict to our agency, we need to immediately recuse ourselves from any further business dealings related to that conflict. What that means is that, although your brother-in-law is free to pursue a contract with your agency, you must immediately remove yourself from participating in any aspect of that procurement or the selection process. You can't have any part in recommending or deciding whether to give your brother-in-law the work or in writing his contract. In summary, avoiding conflicts of interest means that you need to identify the conflict, you need to immediately disclose the conflict, and you need to immediately recuse yourself from any possible business dealings related to that conflict. Three simple steps to confidently making the best decision. In the situation involving the concert tickets, it's now probably pretty clear that you have to refuse the tickets. In the short term, it may not make the vendor or your daughter happy, but in the long run, you'll avoid the consequences of violating the federal ethics rules and your reputation for ethical business dealings will remain intact among your colleagues. The, the business that I own. Sarah, how many have you formed? I'm asking. Now tell us, Sarah, what you know about this little clip. Today we will show you how to fit uh, these plastic book covers on a book and these book covers can fit any book. He knew that Sir John Compton for all his years he had his farming business and he drove his bananas himself to the dock and we have uh, many people all around the world. Slightly and you slide this in like this. Next, you slip the front cover of the book into the pocket here. reported that the sale of passport covers is currently being conducted inside the passport office as part of a privately owned business venture operated by a Minister of Parliament. A Facebook page under the name Book Care contains footage of the passport covers in question. We're going to maybe train around 500 to 600 young people a year from the south. And the south is from Soufrere all the way to Denry. CHTTI recently opened its Castries branch, having moved into the old Monroe College building at Barnard Hill. The institute is being regarded in some quarters, though, as duplicating programs that already exist, such as Springboard and the government-operated National Skills Development Center, NSDC. In fact, government has redirected funds from the NSDC to CHTTI. And I can tell you, 
If I could open ten schools for my wife, I would open ten schools for her. If I could open ten schools for my wife, I would open ten schools for her. We contacted him for the balance of his cash payment, which he received in full. So we paid him in cash full. Some people are just sitting back and because their government is in power, they are making money. That is what is happening. That is exactly why he got that amount of money. You can put it down now. 25000 $839. That is what he got. Because, like I said, the 7% was not only added to the materials he took, but it was also added, it was taken off the entire con contractual sum. So that company sits back. And if $10 million is allocated, for the constituency development program, the company is guaranteed $700,000, which is 7% of the total for doing nothing. It's possible to provide such a facility interest-free after his company obtained a commercial bank loan at 8% interest to finance its own operations. We recognize the need for good governance, but when good governance starts getting in the way of progress, we think that something has to be able to change in that regard. Setlisi ka registre vers min corona ek ika fe mouvement ek an chai vitesse tan chak kanef ka kouye pou vigilance publique la fe wolo pale an place publique kon bolan me base Boutique, changer, distance sociale, six pieds, rodionalot, ikatwa vaitan, si ou senti kou pa cordial, quarantine kou, partware contact epi lot, an kaute twape espose, se an ekwye, free one one obe nepot klinik yopwe ou, le peya dimiakle, savle di, le supermarket, Pharmacy, APATM, yo accessible avant cette soirée. Pays à clé en plein, ça veut dire tout bagaille fermé à 24 heures. C'est vie protocole comme sorti par bureau indication santé. Nous tout ensemble, ça sauver vers min corona. Si nous tout servi jidla à toutes les. In an effort to ensure patient and first responder safety, the St. Lucia Fire Service has reviewed its patient transfer procedures, especially for patients with respiratory distress. Face masks will be provided. At no time during transportation should the face mask be removed. Please be patient and cooperative during this time to ensure you receive the best possible care while keeping our first responders safe. If you haven't checked out Ramjay's auto parts as yet, what are you waiting for? 
We stock a wide assortment of older and newer model popular car and SUV parts. Suzuki, Toyota, Mitsubishi, Honda, Nissan, Mini Cooper and lots more. That's not all. Ramjays also stocks truck and heavy equipment parts. And if that won't help you, we also do heavy equipment rental to keep your downtime at a minimal. Ramjays Auto Parts is located Masad Industrial Zone Grocery. Contact us 450-0495 or 716-1400 or email ramj35 at hotmail.com. Welcome back and thank you so much for staying with us. Thank you for spending your morning with me. Um, as we know, the ongoing budget debate is happening. Um, it started yesterday and it's continuing today. But what we do know is, of course, there's the theater, the antics, the theatrics of the house. But also outside the house, there are also party supporters dressed in the yellow and the red um, in the middle of what we know is you know, campaigning and election season. So, of course, you're going to get a back and forth. That's exactly what's happening in our culture. And we have a video depicting just that. Look, the Flabo supporters quarreling outside of Parliament. Even they're upset with their party. Even they're upset with their government and they're quarreling. Big quarrel. Big quarrel. Big quarrel. Yeah, that's them. They're quarreling. Big quarrel. And that was yesterday. So today I know there's probably even more uh, stuff like that going on. Um, and we know that a lot of people are incensed about a lot of things, including what people are describing as a really great increase in the prices of goods and supplies at Massey and other stores. And especially with what's happening where people need assistance with uh, employment, with their finances, and now to have to deal with and contend with the increase in prices for things that they really do need. Um, I think the, that Massey and the leaders there heard the calls of that and heard people being frustrated and saying that because I've seen so many different posts on social media, people who came on television to say these things to really express themselves about that. And it just goes to show that we really do need to focus on food security in the region and um, on the island and also really look into importing, into not importing as much as we do because for me the, import, the figures I'm getting is that it's 8 to $10 billion in projected, the projected food import bill, which is way too high, especially now. And we know that in the U.S., they, they're also still struggling. The supply and demand chain, and it's trickling down to us. So we have a report where it's showing that Massey and the people there are saying that it's not their fault. They're only dealing with um, what's happening globally, and they're reacting to it as well. Massey Stores St. Lucia says it remains fully committed to serving the general public during the strain brought on by COVID-19. 
the last few weeks have proven difficult for the establishment amid harsh criticism over a notable rise in the prices of items in the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic. Managing Director of Massey Stores St. Lucia, Martin Dorville, in a statement issued Wednesday, responded to the dissatisfaction of price increases. I think this is a cry from our, from our people. Um, people react in different ways. Uh, people are silent and, and unbothered. Some of them are silent and they go through the struggle. Uh, some customers are very aggressive and lash out. Uh, some persons ask questions and some persons offer advice. And um, we have gotten all of that. <laughs> and um, we appreciate the feedback in all forms. Um, what I will always do is ask that you judge us fairly uh, because we have really shown you who we are and that we are ready to serve. Dorville sought to provide an explanation for the high prices imposed on the general public. The prices that we are currently facing, the price increases that we are currently facing are driven by two main factors. Um, one, which is probably rather obvious and direct, are supplier price increases. And um, supplier price increases, as you can well appreciate, we are price takers. And while we negotiate hard, um, our leverage is limited. Um, that notwithstanding, we work very closely with suppliers to suppress prices as much as we can. But those prices are driven in a big way by the level of unprecedented demand that we have had over the last few months. Additionally, Dorville says production capacity has been severely disrupted by COVID-19. He says this has created an imbalance in the supply and demand chain. Moreover, Dorville says under the Article 164 trade regime, impetus is being given to local products. There are other factors impact, impacting local manufacturer prices apart from Article 164. The price of the raw materials would have increased, as was the case with one or two of our suppliers. So it is very important for me to, to make it clear that, that there, there might have been some price increases across local items, and that is the purview of the local manufacturer. But the price advantage of our local manufactured items are sufficient that I think as customers and as solutions, we need to pay closer attention so that we can provide support in that regard while continuing to manage the price of our food basket. Dorville reiterated that Massey Stores St. Lucia is not engaged in any form of price gouging or unfair trade practices. Massey Stores, through a press release, reveals it has incurred significant increases in operational costs, which has not been factored into product pricing. Dorville emphasized the company's promise to maintain an adequate supply of food to customers at fair market prices. Solaj Alfred, HTS News Force. Now, that's the most recent explanation that we've gotten from Mr. Dorville, um, explaining to us why there is an increase. But um, for me, the Commerce Minister, Mr. Bradley Felix, he did mention legislation relating to price gouging. He didn't say when or how it would be there or implemented, but he did mention it 
uh, in passing. So again, we're looking to see how and what we're going to do as a country with relation to our food security, with relation to producing locally, what we're going to do with our farmers and to reduce our import bill. Things that we already had to discuss, but now we're seeing in real time how it can affect all of us. And we heard some people um, in Viewford, vendors, and um, some farmers too, in you know a Vox where people explained how they were feeling in Viewfort, just also mentioning that it's a very difficult time, especially to be a vendor. Well, what I want to see addressed is that we need a proper market. Homeless young men, they have to be out on this from the street. Some of them not good in their head, some of them have odd um, smell, some of them. It's just a mess. I just want government or families to take care of the homeless men. There are many things I want to see improve, but I'm not from Guford actually, but I come and sell in Guford every day. But for us to improve, the first, thing, the first place we must start is with Chasne. We have to step down, resign and allow somebody else to run the country. St. Judy, they have to pick up St. Judy and make it pick the hospital because the, um, the stadium we have, not, it's not a hospital, machine up already, so they have to do something in St. Judy. Gouvernement français, all right. Les gens pas ça travail. Ils Mais ici, on a 25 a piltima mungi alaita ishebionom, even pamem kunet papai, setiamalaka sufe, yo fe, yo sweat. Shak yish, madame la aisha she, shak peya she, yono yish, de fani kat sek, ekibasa fan yet setimamaila. Set lisi pani pies gouvernement, se, toa kaswa tu sel, men bon, God provide. The only thing I want to see fixing before is the people have to come together, stop all negativity. Praise Jah, give thanks every day, love one another, stop the hatred, and be strong. There's nothing can run. Alwin Chasne is in power. He, he lacks um, the mental ability to, to run the country. He do not have what it takes to run the country. And the main thing is that he's not of us, he's different from us. He cannot speak our language. He cannot understand us. So you see, if, if you're in a country where the leader cannot understand its people, you know that country is doomed. You know, so that is the main thing. And this drain right there, they need to unblock it. One of the main things is the job losses, and I think, um, I do not know what government can do about it, but I think there are lots of people who can who can do otherwise apart from the the normal normal work. You know, I mean, we, a lot of people have the land where they can do farming, they can do something else apart from the, the main duties. Like if you're out of a job, some people have land and... No, they have not been used to do the farming, but at least if any, everybody could do the little farming, the backyard gardening and so on, I think that would help the situation a lot. I expect there to be more sorts of development um, and upgrade where it comes to the car parks, um, the, the bus terminals and car parks. Yeah, we need a terminal in the south, there's no doubt about that. When you see, I mean, Vuford is over there, Sufre Library, Monrepo is over there, they're all about the place, and there's no toilet facilities. If somebody, if rain is coming, I mean, there's no shelter to shelter anybody to get shelter for the buses, especially the 2H. That's what I've been asking for years, to have somewhere that, I mean, that when you're loading, you can shelter the rain. For the young people that are coming up there, because we do not have jobs for them, provide them with 
proper facilities like me too i'm getting old i need proper facility for them to sell my goods look at right there i am if everybody want to kick people out of the streets where will i go what do they want me to do is it to go and sleep with a man to get a daily bread With the most pulsating, the most riveting, the most eye-capturing UTV. To advertise with UTV, dial 484-7588 or 572-7588. For some of the most competitive rates, amazing programming, and bang for your buck. The most popular streaming channel, UTV124 on Facebook. Get it now. Check us out on Instagram at UTV124. Email us utvslu at gmail.com. It's not just for me, it's definitely TV for you. Welcome back uh, to the show. We are still there live and being aired on Hits FM 92.1 in the north and 91.1 in the south also on Facebook. We are being streamed there live and channel 124 on Flow. Now, as we go on, we will open the lines very soon at 572-7588 where we can discuss any one of the issues that you want or anything that I have brought up. Uh, for me, I was really interested in the calls of corruption that we've had recently in the country and nothing has ever happened. And it's irksome that <laughs> nothing is happening to me, for me. And um, the culture, it seems, is just what it is. If you want to talk to me about that, if you want to... If you think that I'm wrong and something is happening or if you know of something that I don't know and somebody actually did, there were repercussions for that or somebody got punished for wrongdoing um, in mismanagement of funds or, you know, fiscal mismanagement, anything of the sort, then I would also like to know. Uh, but for now, I think the main issue will remain the public servants, uh, what is being offered to them with regards to the duty-free vehicles for 
um, certain public servants. But before we get into that, we know that there has been a lot of back and forth between the government and in particular the Prime Minister with the unions and with the public service workers. So if we could go back, because we have to put it in historical and social context, because as we know, they're in the middle of negotiations still with the uh, 50%, whether to take the 50% bonds and take the other 50% in cash. Um, and if we can put the open letter, which was uh, there from last month, from the Prime Minister, if we can put that up on screen, where the Prime Minister, in essence, gave a sort of ultimatum to the unions and that they wanted a response uh, by the 1st of June, by the 1st of June, uh, but that didn't happen, and they rejected that. We can put it down now. The trade union pre president rejected that. Um, and for now, we don't know exactly what is happening with that as well. Uh, we also, the same person that gave us that, gave us the... Uh, that's not your role sort of thing that the Prime Minister said to the union leaders. If you could take a look at that as well. If the public sector unions did not get the message during the border control debate, the Prime Minister is making himself clear once again. Stop it. It is not your job to tell the government how to run government. You are a component of government. And so saying that you don't like this project or you don't like that project, that is for the electorate of this country to determine when the election comes. That's when that judgment day is going to come. There is a crisis on our hands, Prime Minister Alan Chastney says. St. Lucia's head of government on Saturday addressed the nation, providing additional information on plans for a phased reopening of the country. And one of the issues addressed is the current stalemate between public sector unions and government over a proposed mixed modality of wage payments, a combination of cash and government bonds. Stop it. It is not your job to tell the government how to run government. You are a component of government. And so saying that you don't like this project or you don't like that project that is for the electorate of this country to determine when the election comes so we hear there the prime minister huffing the union leaders and the public servants and saying stop it um and also the ultimatum in that open letter so it was really uh, very powerful words from the prime minister and i said uh, last week that he seemed to be backtracking and the tone has not is moved from powerful and you know demanding to now acquiescence and we will do what you want us to do and let's work together sort of thing in a kumbaya sort of moment um and now the most recent thing is with the duty-free vehicles and a lot of people feel insulted that the Prime Minister would offer such a thing, especially at this time when everybody is struggling financially, the, the economy isn't what it used to be, and he's offering duty-free vehicles. And we have, of course, a response from the President of the Civil Service Association, who again, even before he said he would not succumb to the Prime Minister's intimidation tactics when he said to stop it and that sort of thing. And now he's saying the Prime Minister is doing another thing where he's trying to break up the public servants and not have them united and see them very divisive and we have that report from uh, choice the government has taken the decision to provide duty-free concessions on vehicles for a stipulated period of time to essential service staff who've been employed for more than five years within the public service the details of this measure will be finalized after further consultation with the relevant stakeholders while this announcement has been welcomed by essential workers in social media posts expressing their gratitude for this decision, not everyone is as pleased. 
A June 24th missive issued by Civil Service Association President Cyprian Montrope reads in part, quote, I have come to the conclusion that this is an attack on members of the CSA, end quote. But why such a strong sentiment? And now that we are hearing that public officers, selected public officers, would be receiving uh, duty concessions. And we are indeed very happy that those officers are, are, are receiving concessions. But what is important to the CSA is that the officers that were requ requested duty-free concessions for are the individuals using their personal vehicles to do the work of the state. But the state turned around, didn't give it to them, and is now giving officers who seldom or do not use their vehicles to do the work of the state concessions. That, we believe, is very discriminatory and unconscionable. The letter also states that the decision to provide these concessions is, quote, an attempt to undermine the solidarity of public service workers and their representative unions, end quote. We have, over the years, observed the operations of employers. Uh, when unions stand together, they, they are stronger. And whenever you begin to give one union something more, then you'd want to give another union. We in that fraternity view that as a means of undermining, creating a divide and rule environment. Um, it has been tried during the salary negotiations, and again it has been tried through the concessions. And so we have to be of the firm belief that that is an intention to create a divide and rule um, because of the discriminatory way that the government chose to give the duty concession. Montrop has appealed to the government to do the right thing, citing the Prime Minister's recent proclamation of the importance of public service workers. The right thing is to provide travel the request of the CSA, that we have made a request for our traveling officers, who, by the way, have a contract with the government to use their vehicles, their vehicles, to do the work of the state. And we are saying to the government that concessions should have been granted to them. That is the right thing to do, to give the individuals who are using their personal vehicles to do the work of the state the concessions. Just like the government found it fitting to give persons who do not use their vehicles to do the work of the state, we are asking that the government give to the traveling officers that benefit. Montrobe says that he believes it is disingenuous to use COVID-19 as a justification for this decision. He says that public service workers like veterinary officers and extension officers have also worked throughout the lockdown. All ministries were open. All of these employees were working during COVID-19, putting their lives at risk during that time. Was any consideration given to them? The answer is no. That is why we are saying it's discriminatory and ingenious to use COVID-19 as any means of providing benefits in the manner in which it's provided today. The CSA president explained that they have been requesting duty-free concessions on vehicles for over 15 years for successive administrations. According to him, the CSA will not stop advocating for this request. For Choice News Now, Nelsia.
And with that, we will open the lines at 5727588. We could speak about what is happening um, within the show, or you can talk about anything that you want to. There are a lot of things going on, so I, I would love to hear your experiences, your thoughts on so many different issues. Um, yesterday, um, I still remember being called Lucia. I had people calling me Lucia all yesterday, so Gaspar, thank you for that. Um, so again, I'm looking forward to the calls. The prime minister really does seem to be rubbing people the wrong way. Um, and the head of the unions, because I didn't know that they were, they wanted these duty free vehicles for so long, 15 years ago, and they were in the middle of discussing it and only, uh, again, no consultation, just putting it out there during a budget address and for what people believe is just another election promise. Now, this is not the first time and this is not the only uh, union leader who has come out and saying that they will not say and stand for what the prime minister is doing. We also had the uh, teachers union and trade union federation president, Mr. Julian Monroe, also um, taking umbrage to that just a month ago, saying that there was a high-handedness of the prime minister in how he went about with negotiations. And now we're hearing that. And we know that there are thousands of civil service workers um, and Mr. Montrope is representing them, representing thousands of them as well. So when he is saying that it's unfair and it's discriminatory, so, you know, a lot of people are thinking and feeling that too. So I don't know whether it's Cambridge Analytica that gave you that advice, Mr. PM, but uh, it does seem to be working. Uh, and many people <clears throat> have said, and these are the exact words, uh, we'll and come again. So maybe that's not the, the way to get them. You have to probably try something else. But... Uh, that was done. The Prime Minister made that announcement yesterday, but hours before that announcement, when he spoke during the budget address, he also gave a speech for World Public, uh, World Public Servants Day, and that was yesterday as well, and he had this to say. An effective public officer is one who goes above and beyond the call of duty to serve the interest of the greater good. We recognize that your efforts are always scrutinized, and often criticized. Criticism that is not always warranted or justified, but also provides opportunities for reflection about your goals to determine what can be done to create better public value for the citizens. We've just recently witnessed in real time, and indeed we are all still witnessing it, the value of public service, as together as a nation, we fight the onslaught of the coronavirus. It is mainly public service personnel who've been in the forefront of this battle to keep our country and people safe. The results we've achieved are clear indication that you've all done a truly remarkable job and deserve the highest commendation from the rest of us. COVID-19 has actually taken us all into uncharted territory, which required everyone working together to achieve the desired results. In so doing, everyone was called to, on to play his or her part. Public officers were called on to make significant sacrifices in the line of duty, to care for the sick, to enforce law and order, to ensure the machinery of government continued to operate despite a drastic scaling down of activities, including a curfew. To our frontliners, police, firemen, correctional officers, customs officers, nurses, doctors, emergency and essential service workers, 
I say again, a heartful thank you. And what I think too is that we must be careful not to create more division and a competition of sorts to, as to who is more essential than the other because a lot of um, public servants workers they were they were there they were working they were working in offices they were, some of them were told to stay home and some of them had to stay home because that were the protocols at the time um, so now we're hearing the Prime Minister saying that, you know, you're needed and a good pub public um, service worker is one that makes sacrifices and does, you know, does it for the greater good sort of thing, right? And then we have him also saying stop it and huffing <laughs> the, the, the workers there as well. But we also have people within his cabinet saying that we didn't miss you. And I said earlier that people will forget what you said and what you did, and they will never forget how you made them feel. And people felt, and I said that before, that people felt invisible. They felt insulted by those comments, um, especially when uh, there was the talk of, if you're not going to take the, the bonds that we're offering, then we will be forced to go uh, and make it legal and find a way so that you can get a salary cut or find another way to get the money from you. That was said by our leaders. And now we're saying, you know, don't worry about that. Uh, we can give you duty-free um, vehicles. So again, it's just staying to one thought at a time if the government can at least have a coherent um, thought on such matters. But I think it's also important that we hear what the economic growth minister said about public servants on just about a few months ago. I think that's a problem that needs to be taken head on. My position, and I'm not afraid to declare my position on it, I don't think you sacrifice good workers for the sake of workers who do not produce. And as we speak, from since the COVID situation started, there have people in my ministry who have never reported to work one day. And yet still, I challenge anybody to show me that the productivity yes, of yes. the ministry is any less than it should be when you have all the workers. So clearly, if there's one thing that COVID has proved is that the public service can operate with a lot less than we have presently and still be as efficient and productive as when you have the full staff complement. Minister, Minister why... Joseph, just to cut you for two seconds there, mm -hmm. I, I've, I'm receiving a, a barrage of messages here from people who say, I agree 100%. Somebody else here said, uh, excellent statement by Minister Joseph, just to let you know that. But there's a barrage of messages there agreeing with exactly what you said. So, and, and we, we had a discussion today, and we were reviewing the situation. I was looking at the performance of my ministry, and I was looking at the number of people who have been at work and the number who have not been at work. Now, we should never sink the country for the sake of one sector. And that is my position and my cabinet colleagues are fully aware. You do not run the country into the precipice to 
just to please some unions and some um, workers who have not reported to work at all, who have made no contribution for the last month. And we don't blame them for not being there. We know it's because of the, the COVID situation. But the reality is we don't even miss them because you, you're not even aware that they're not there because the work is still being done. Yes, some people are being more strange. So here's the reality of what Rick was saying. And Rick and I have had these discussions before. The reality is that you need a more lean public service. Now, what are the options available to us? The unions refuse to guide their members to take the deferred payment. Then the next thing is you go to parliament, you legislate a cut. Or do you restructure the entire public service? And I always tell people, I don't say one thing and do another thing. I try to lead by example what I do. So in my ministry of housing, where are the PS, and how many top officials, I just merge housing under economic development with one PS at, um, house, at economic development for both housing, and then you have a DPS in, in the other section. So immediately, you have cut out the need for somebody at the top there, which brings savings. They continue to have people on the books for more than 10 years who've been on suspension, still getting a government salary every month. Some of them are overseas. Some of them are working other places. Because of the inefficiencies of the Public Service Commission in bringing closure to some of these issues, these people continue to draw down on government resources that are not available. So I agree with Rick that this thing is spoiled badly and the unions are not helping the situation. And I refuse to be part of a process where we are going to sing the whole country, which includes both the private sector and the public sector, to sustain some people who are not willing to make a basic sacrifice at this point in time. In other words, if you look at the three months deferment of 50% of their salary, that is one and a half months to delay the payment over the year. One and a half months out of the 12 months, and the rest of the months you get your full payment. People are not willing to make that little sacrifice to sustain and to save. Themselves. So they don't Them care how many themselves. other people Mr. lose their themselves. job in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how unconscionable can that be? So now we have looked at the different thought processes that our leaders have regarding public service. But it's not just, you know, the public service workers. Right now, these are also votes. The workers are votes, and there are thousands of them. So, of course, some people think, you know, the prime minister right now is pandering to people and insulting their intelligence by pro promising something that seems near impossible. And even if it were, who right now is going to look for a vehicle when they're trying to 
pay bills and overdue bills and mortgages and doing whatever they have to do, other real bills that they have um, that they have to take care of instead of trying to get a new ride. So um, with that, we've come to the end of the show where we, of course, going to discuss a lot of different issues. And right now, I really want to know what the public service workers especially are going through. I hope you guys got paid in full. I don't know. you. I want you to tell me so I know who to... Um, who to tackle right now when I go back home. Uh, my father's a fire officer. By the way, um, shout out to the fire officers in Viewfort. I know you guys are locked in. Thank you so much for watching. And with that, we come to the end of our show. I appreciate you guys staying in and staying locked in, discussing so many of the different issues that we have going on. And we'll do that again tomorrow. So with that, I thank you for staying locked in on Hits FM 92.1 and 91.1, also on Facebook, on Channel 124, and on Instagram. And later on, we'll also be on Twitter, I'm hearing. And with that, have a great afternoon. Whether they thought the PM's apology was genuine or crocodile tears. Well, it wasn't genuine. If you play football, person. Hmm? So, Kai Padone? Uh, no, we. Kai Padone, you're going to take what?